0: Uh, if you're anything like me, your life is marked by highs and lows. Uh, you've got good things that happen, challenging things that happen. And so what I think the mark of a true believer is really how they persevere through highs and lows. What you see, and this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how the gospel transcends highs and lows. And so what you see in this church that Paul's talking to in Philippians He's talking to a church that has historically had m- marks of highs and lows. This is a maturing group of people that love Christ. They know the gospel. They know what Christ has done on the cross. And they are living it out and in the city, in their lives. And man, they're doing life together. But what you see is there's constantly, even though they're maturing, you see this constant war that kind of keeps kind of creeping in. And so let me just give you an example of, of a few things that we see here in Philippians 4. Right before this comes up, in chapter one, here's what happens. You have Paul, who's this amazing teacher. He starts this church, he's teaching them the gospel, and then he leaves, he gets imprisoned, he's he's bold in his faith. He he would do things like get baptized publicly and, and baptize others publicly, and that caused a stir. And so what you had is people that were following him up, and they were trying to be preachers. And what you would see is they're doing it for the wrong motivation, but the content of the gospel was right. So Paul's saying, hey, even if these people are preaching the gospel for their own namesake, I'm still glad because the gospel content is right. Another group comes in. I mean, this church is getting attacked in all different levels. Another church comes in, and it's these people who thought that the gospel was something else. They would say, well, you need to, you need to do this in order to really be loved by Christ. Yeah, the, the cross is good. The cross is everything, yes. But you need to add this little other thing to it. And so Paul responds to them. He says, well, you guys are dogs. You guys are dogs. And he's angry at these people. So he rejoices when the content's right but the motive's wrong. He's angry when the content is, is shot. When, when the content of the gospel is messed with, it's shot. So he's angry at that. Then the next group of people. This is a group he, he identifies in chapter 3. These are people who have heard the gospel. They know what it means. They know the content of it. But they, they go and they live their life however they want. They're probably not believers. They walk out of the church and Paul weeps He's, he's sorrowful because people are not trusting in what we just saw. I mean, they're finding their hope in other things and not the gospel. And so one group, they've got the content right, just their motives wrong. One group has the content wrong, and Paul's mad about that. The other group, they, they understand it intellectually But they don't live it out, and it doesn't look like anything, and there's no real transformation. They just have idols in their heart. I mean, he says, your God is your belly. They they find all these things, and he actually calls them enemies of the cross. So, man, Paul has all kinds of issues here in this church. Uh, The other thing that happens is really interesting in chapter 4. You have all these groups of people that are kind of tinkering with the gospel, This next group is a group within the church. It's two women who love Jesus, who have been doing the work of the gospel, and they have a conflict. So what does Paul do with that? Well, he aggressively goes after their hearts and their minds of, hey, this issue's been going on for a while because Paul's actually heard about it. Like he's a long ways away and this issue is still going on with these two ladies. And he comes along and he says, hey, love Christ with your heart and love Christ with your mind. And this is how we resolve this conflict. And so I want to show you what this looks like here. Let's start with uh, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Synthis to agree in the lord now i don't know about you but i see those names like iodia and Synthis. i'm going i bet Synthys gets blamed for a lot of stuff right i mean sin is in her name right i mean so i'm wondering if the conflict is just on her name i don't we don't know what the conflict is but we know that it somehow affected this church in such a way that paul writes a letter saying hey Here's what I want you to do. He doesn't say, one of you are right and the other one's wrong. He doesn't say, here's what I think we should do. We should have the color of the church carpet this way. Or we should do this style of music. He doesn't do any of that. He goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to agree in the Lord. Some of your Bibles might say, have harmony. Live in harmony. Here's what that phrase actually means. Have harmony the same mind as Christ. Have the same mind as Christ. So if we disagree with other people, other believers, he says, listen, it's not about you being right or you being wrong or you being right and you being wrong. He says, it's about you both having the same mind as Christ because when you're pursuing him, you're, you're going, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And, and so what you see, and, and this is, Paul's just using a a biblical principle. This is what he does. Like Hebrews 12, 14 through 15, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which one will be see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it become defiled. So here's what he's saying. If we understand grace Rightly, We understand peace with others rightly. That's what he's saying. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And this is what Paul is saying. Listen, if you understand the gospel of what Christ has done on the cross for you, that you were, as all the testimonies were, dead in your sin, that Christ raised you from death and he gave you new life by taking on all your sins on the cross by being crucified and nailed and having the most horrific death. He reconciled you. He made you right before a holy God. That is what the cross accomplished for you. So everything about your life right now as a believer, if you are a believer this morning, if you've been changed by Christ in the gospel, everything about your life is now about reconciliation. If you've been reconciled to God, you understand reconciliation better than anybody. So what Paul's saying, listen, I'll I'll just put it in a different word. I'll just put it in a different wording. Let me simplify this even more. If you have hatred in your heart toward someone, you don't get the gospel. I mean, First John's clear. He's like, you can't love God and hate your brother. It's a gospel issue. So what Paul wants in the body is he wants harmony, but he doesn't do it by just hammering out the minute details of what people have issues with. He says, listen, pursue Christ. Have the same mind as Christ. Understand the gospel. And through that, you want to reconcile because you were reconciled to God through Christ. That's what he does. That's what he does. So he wants you to live in harmony. He wants you to run to Christ. He wants you to run to the cross. Then this is what he does in verse 4. He says this in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord. What? Always. And again, I will say, rejoice. He repeats it just in case you miss it. This is what I want you to see. I want you, even in the midst of highs and lows, even when there's conflict and there's trials and difficulty, when the circumstances, when there's people coming and they're messing with the gospel, when there's people coming in and there's conflict in the body, even even when there's good things that are happening in the body, he says, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice. Despite your circumstances, despite what is happening, if you understand rightly that you've been reconciled to God through Christ, you look at your circumstances and you say, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. I, I only have what I have because of what Christ has given me. And so this isn't just a knowledge about him. It is Understanding what he's done, yes, intellectually, but your heart and your emotion also ties into this. This is both your mind and your heart. And he's saying, this is Jesus' commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that is the greatest commandment. And through that, you can love your neighbor. It's clear. Heart, soul, and mind. I mean, John says it in verse, John chapter 15. He says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Go down to eleven. He says, These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be in you, and, and that your joy may be full. So he's like, Words may you may abide in my word, you may abide in my commandments, you may abide in my love, and through that you can rejoice. So if you want to know, how do I rejoice in difficult circumstances and challenges? Abide in his word, his truth. Abide in his commandments. What he tells us to do to obey him. Abide in his love. What he's done for you on the cross. What he's done for you um, at Calvary when he took on all of your sin and he rose from the grave. That is what he's saying. Abide in me. Trust that. Know that. And through that, when times get good or bad, you still say I rejoice because that is what I abide in. And so let's go back to verse 5. This is what he says. Continues this idea of rejoicing. He says this, let your reasonableness, this is how you treat others, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, I don't know about you, when I see, do not be anxious for anything, that's really hard. That's just really difficult. But if you look at what is happening right before, what does he say? The Lord is at hand. If the Lord is at hand, what do we have to be anxious about? What do we have to be anxious about? If he's proven his love for us on the cross and he is actively involved in our lives, he's there, he sent the Holy Spirit as a helper in our hearts, what do we have to be anxious about? What do we have to be anxious Now listen, I'm not talking about fear. I know we have fears, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about what are you anxious about? What are your worries? I mean, didn't Jesus talk about this in John 6? And Jesus is like, don't be anxious about your life. He goes, who feeds you? He goes, who puts clothes on your body? He's like, any of you have the ability to add a day to your life? Anybody? You have that ability? He goes, think about the flowers of the fields. Hey, who made those pretty? Who made those grow? Did they do it? Did the flowers say, I think I'll be a rose? No. Jesus makes those pretty. Jesus makes those grow. He goes, the fir- look at the birds. Look at the birds. How do they eat? I mean, do they go to Arby's? No. He feeds them. He feeds them. And then what he does is this. He backs it up with this huge concept. He goes, you know Solomon, that real rich guy? That guy who had hundreds of wives and trillions of dollars and trillions of real estate and thousands of horses and thousands of gardens. Yeah, that guy, he didn't do any of that. I did it. I gave him that. That's me. The Lord is at hand, which means he is in your life. I think if we can just get out of our heads that God is, he knows the future. Yes, I agree with that. Absolutely, 100%. God knows the future. But I think if we just get our heads that he knows the future rather than he is the future, it's a place that he already is, he sits outside of our time. He's outside of our time and he rules over everything. He's he's involved in every detail of your life. Good times, bad times. When people know Christ, he's involved. When tsunamis happen, he's there. He's there. He's outside of time, ruling sovereignly over all things. And so when we look at this and we say, what do I have to be anxious about? He's there. He's already there in the future. He's already there. He preordained it before the foundation of the world. He knew and he planned it that it would happen. All of my sufferings that I've ever gone through, he planned and he was there. He was there. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear like these testimonies, for instance, and I see the struggle that people have, I can't help but just think God put those struggles there so that they could see him as good. So I look and say, what do I? What does Ben Tugwell have to be anxious about? <laughs> this is hard. And I'm not saying, I'm not coming at you saying, I'm a master at not being anxious. Follow me, right? I, I just have to trust what Paul says here and what God says to us. He explains what happens next. This is how a mature believer handles not being anxious. This is what he does. But in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your what? Request be known to God. So he gives you three little disciplines here. One is obviously prayer. He goes, hey, you're anxious. You feel like The highs and lows are challenging you. You're in a tough spot. You can't make a right decision. You're worried about what's going to happen next. You're worried about this job situation. You're worried about having a child, whatever it is. He says, listen, pray. Ask him to help you. Just go to him and say, Lord, help me. This is in good times and in bad times. Help me. Supplication, that's what that actually means. It's the type of prayer. So he says the discipline of what you do when you're anxious is to pray. Then he gives you the type of discipline, He's the type of prayer. He says supplication. Supplication is you saying help. You're in control. I'm not. Have you ever been in that situation where you just feel like I'm not in control? I think that's a really good place, by the way. When you realize you're not in control and the God who is in, stands outside of time, who rules over everything, who is in charge, who is sovereign over all things, he holds you in his heart. If you're a believer in Christ, he's in control. And I think the the sooner you realize that you're not in control and that he is, the better your prayers will be. You know, the better your prayers will be. The more you'll say, I'm not in control, you are, I trust you trust you. I am like the flowers of the field. I'm like the birds in the air. You feed me. You clothe me. You give me life. You can take away days of my life. I can't, Adam. So, prayer, supplication, and then he does this. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. This is the attitude of our hearts. Thanksgiving is not, he did this He healed this person. He got me this job. Now I'm thankful. Here's the attitude. Regardless of what happens, when you pray, God always answers prayer, by the way. He always answers prayer. Here's how he does it. Yes, no, and not right now. He always answers yes, no, and not right now. And sometimes what happens when we pray and we ask him, he doesn't give it to us right away or the way that we thought it would happen. But what does prayer do? It just allows you to trust him and say, Lord, regardless of the outcome, I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're in control. I'm going to pray for your will to be done. And so you ask, what is the purpose of prayer? Is to know him more intimately and trust him more. Say, so God, and then when he when does it, you say, you love me. Thank you. You've given me something else outside of the cross. And I'm so grateful and thankful for what you've done. And so... It, he gives you this attitude of saying thankfulness, regardless of what happens, be thankful because he's already proven the answer to the question of does he love you. He's already done it. So you go further in, and he says, and. And so this, because of this attitude and trusting him, this is what happens next. If you pray and you ask him to help you, you know that you're not in control, and you're thankful for whatever the outcome, here's what happens. Here's the next verse. He says, and the peace of God. So all those things, if that happens and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me explain this verse. I love this verse. I love this verse. I'm going to tell you what it does mean, but I want to first tell you what it doesn't mean, Okay? Many have done this. Most of the time we hear this verse. It's about a decision making. It's about, do I buy an Xbox 360 or a PlayStation 2? I'm going to pray. I'm going to give supplication. I'm going to give thanksgiving, whatever the answer is. And you say, well, I just have a piece about a PlayStation 2. And because of that piece, I'm going to make my decision. You say, should I buy an Accord or should I buy a Camry? I'm going to ask God and I'm going to let him give me peace. I'll make my decision based on peace. Can I just submit to you that that is probably not what this verse is about? (laughs) Can I just submit to you that it's probably not even about decision making? If you look at all of Philippians, what do you see? Do you see decision making or do you see perseverance? How God is going to get you through. I mean, let me just quote you just some verses in Philippians. He says, hold fast to the word of truth. He says, he who began a good work in you will finish it. He says, run the race so that you might receive the prize. He says, he talks consistently about this day of Christ that's coming. He talks consistently about our citizenship being in heaven. What is this book about? Is it about decision making or is it about perseverance? It's about perseverance. It's about how Christ who began a good work in you through the cross, you trusting him, he will finish it. He will get through it. He will Even when you're in the hot seat, even when you're in the fire, he will get you through it. That's what this whole book is about. It's about because of that, you have joy. You respond with gratitude. And so it's not, do I buy Xbox or do I I buy a a PlayStation 3? Oh, he's giving me peace. We can't make decisions just on peace. We just can't. Here's, let me give you an example. When I was doing a church planting internship in Atlanta, Georgia, we had no money. My wife is pregnant and just, I mean, there's nothing you can do about that, by the way. Alright? You cannot reverse that thing. Alright? It's going to happen. She gets pregnant and we're like, well, okay, you know, this is what, you, you know, flower of the field, God, that's what I am (laughs) and then nine months comes let me tell you when that ninth month came you want to say did you have peace no (laughs) no so if it was about peace about our decision making about peace I could say well I don't have peace about this kid coming I'm packing my bags I'm rolling out right Our decision-making is not about peace. Our decision-making is about trusting God with everything. Do I go to Africa? Do I go to Belize? Trust God. Make the decision. It's not about peace. It's not about peace. He says, peace of God that passes all understanding. You rest and know whatever the outcome, I'm going to trust you that's the peace that I rest on. That's what I want to know of the cross of Christ, what he's accomplished for me. That is where I find my peace. That's where I find it. I'll never forget. Um, when, I, when we brought Scott on as the second elder of our church, second pastor of our church, we interviewed him in a video, and I asked him, you know, hey, man, your life is, has had some interesting highs and lows You've had some suffering happen. I mean, I think Scott and Anna's first house, the the roof blew off. You know? And they've been in Poland and cold countries and dealing with language issues. And so they move here just trusting God, Not, not just being goofy about it, but trusting God. No job. No job. He comes here. He comes to integrity. God's just doing amazing things in his family's life, brought them to a church that... Would, would love them and take care of them that, that teaches scripture, that loves scripture, that loves Jesus. Just a few months after we're going through the elder process, he finds out his wife has cancer. And I asked him, I said, man, tell us about that. How has that affected your life? He said, Ben, you know, I have to trust and know, does God love me? Yes, he's proven that on the cross. When he died on the cross for me, when he gave his life for me, I trusted him because I know that he loves me. He's already answered that question, and I have to trust that the God who sent his one and only son, who gave his life for me, that he planned this to happen to my wife, and I got to trust him. I got to know that he's sovereign and good. That's the peace that passes all understanding. That's the peace that passes all understanding, is trusting in the gospel, and being hopeful that you are in control of my life. In control of my life. This is why believers aren't afraid of death. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. And unbelievers, people that don't know Christ, are going, I hope I don't die tomorrow, right? I hope I don't, something doesn't, you know, having my kids, right? But a believer who gets it, they say, whatever. Whatever happens, I know you're in control. I mean, I think somewhere in the Bible we see to live as Christ and to die as game. I mean, I think that's somewhere, right? Where have we seen that? Yeah. It's trusting him, knowing that he's in control. So he's going to show you how the emotive state coincides with your mind. So you can't separate these things out. You cannot separate these things out. He goes from This idea of you trusting God, and he's like, it's not about you just feeling this emotion. He goes into more details. And so, I think what we've done in the church, you've created two groups of people. One group of people, they're all about emotions. It's just, let's just love Jesus. Let's just not worry about the doctrine. Let's not worry about the deep things of God. Let's just love Christ. So there 's one group, the other group is just like let 's know sound doctrine let 's know the deep things let 's know the heavy, weighty things and and what that happens is this: you create two groups that kind of are against each other because one group 's like we don 't need that doctrine man we don 't need that junk and the other group 's like this, that we know sound doctrine, and those people are idiots and they 're weak right What happens is this both groups, if you throw yourself in one of those camps. Both groups are arrogant and ignorant. He's saying, no, we got to have both. God loves an innocent and beautiful heart that loves him completely, but you ought to love him rightly as well. You ought to love him rightly. And that's what Paul wants to see in this body. It's not just loving with your emotions, it's loving with your mind. That's what he talks about here. He says... And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your what? Your mind in Christ Jesus. Let me just give you an example. If, if you don't think that loving God rightly matters, it absolutely does. My son today, he's waiting for me to get home. And my wife is not feeling well today, so he's at home with her. He knows like, what we do. We have a Friday fortnight where I go into my office... I get sheets out on our, from our beds and I put them in my office and we make a fort and we sleep in it. And he thinks that is it is ama- I'm a I'm a rock star that week. He cannot wait and so I have not had Friday and fortnight in a while. So we're having Sunday fortnight, and he loves it because he loves it because he knows that there's things that I am going to do differently than every other night. He knows Daddy's going to I'm gonna stay up later right. I'm going, we're going to eat popcorn until we almost throw up, right? We're going to watch movies that are probably a little bit more, you know, action, you know, minded, you know? And so he knows that that's going to happen. But suppose I get home and say, hey, buddy, you know, let's just, um, let's just sleep on the, on the couch. Let's eat some rutabagas, you know? <laughs> let's watch movies about gorillas. My son is scared to death of gorillas. <laughs> what he would do in that moment is this. I think someone has taken over my dad's body and he's now come here. <laughs> and he's hijacked sat Sunday fortnight. What would happen if, if I went there and said all those things? Now it sounds like a fun night at Riverbates. I mean, come on. What would happen that night? He would say, my daddy doesn't know me. My daddy doesn't really know me, and so this is why knowing God matters because it influences the way that you really show and express your love to Him. I've, I've given you examples about how my wife—if I just described came home and just told my wife, "Hey, honey, I love your blonde hair, and I love your your brown eyes, and I love your tall, long legs." It would—it sounds really attractive the the emotions are right but what I'm saying about her is wrong she has brown eyes I mean she has green eyes (laughs) she has brown hair and she's not tall she's short I'm sorry she's just vertically challenged right if I came and my emotions were right but my content was wrong that would go bad for me that would not go well for me blonde hair who you been messing around with right you know it matters The content matters. This is why he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. This is why he says that you will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. That your heart and your mind are together and they're both centered on knowing him deeply and knowing him in a beautiful and innocent way. Because what happens is this. If you love him without rightly knowing him, what you do in practice doesn't matter. Your practice will will be dangerous. If you know him, but your emotions are not tied to that, what will happen is you don't practice anything. You're just lazy. And so what he says, he doesn't want any of that. He wants you to love the Lord with your mind and your heart. Then he tells you how to do that. He goes right in, verse 9, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I wish I had time to unpack all of these, but he says whatever is true, cling to what is true, hate what is not true, everything that you know, if if you don't cling to what is true, what you build your life on is only a lie. It's only a lie. He wants your foundation to be built on what he says to be true. So that's one thing you think about. He says, honorable, honorable. So here's, here's, let me just give you an example of honorable. I always think about myself as an old crazy preacher that's still married to his wife and still loves her. Like I just want to be that crazy old guy with a high water, like you know, suit and just yells at people a lot, you know. It's just whatever, you know. He's just that old, you know. The Cologne smelling hand, you know. And I just have this image in my mind of me doing that, and my wife, you know, old, and our son loves Christ, and his children are coming to Christ, and that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And I have that vision in my mind, and that is when I wrap my mind around this image of what will happen. So here's the thing. If I see a pretty woman and I begin to allow my thoughts to indulge on that but then I compare it to that memory that I have of old Ben and old Jess and my son his children love Jesus and he loves Jesus it pales in comparison. I say I can't I can't focus on this. This is what I want for my life. This will ruin that. He says, think about what is honorable. What will get you through. So I think what we have to do is just exchange image for image sometimes. We talk about what's honorable. If you want to fight sin, no truth, yes. Hide the word in your heart that you might not sin against God. That's David. But also think about what is honorable. He says, just, pure, lovely, commendable. He says, excellent. Which by the way, Excellent's a good word because he's like, don't be nominal, Don't just be content with just being this marginal Christian. Go for what is excellent. Run hard after him. And then he says, whatever is worthy of of praise, worthy of talking about. Then he says this, verse 9. This is the last verse. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. What's the word? practice these things and let the god of peace the same peace that passes all understanding will be with you he uses the word practice i think this is a key word here what does practice mean it means that this is not your first this is not your first tendency to do these things i mean when i go and i work out at the gym that is not my first tendency to go and lift stuff and run that's insane. Like, that is not my first tendency. like, I want to run today. But if I want to be in shape, I have to do that. I have to fight what is not my normal tendency, not my first tendency. And so, is it your first tendency to rejoice in all things? If you say that, you're probably not telling the truth, all right? It's not my first tendency to, to rejoice in all things first. It's not. I mean, when something difficult happens to me, I'm like, no, oh, you know, I get frustrated. God, what are you doing? What what did you do that for me for? Why did you do that? That's my first tendency. But he says, practice these things. That means I have to go against what my first tendency would be. If I really understand the gospel, then I say, oh, wait a minute. You died for me. You did that for me. So I know you love me. I have to trust you in this. And so practice these things. When when he says, lay all anxiety down, it's not my first tendency. But I have to practice these things. Think about what is true. I mean, Romans 12, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is a transformation thing. This has got to happen. It's a process that happens in a believer. Transform your mind. It's not our first tendency to think about what is true. It's not. I mean, when you are tempted in some way, you there's something about it. Your first tendency is like, I want to go after that. That looks attractive. I'm going to pursue that. Practice these things. Put on what is true. Is it your first tendency to think about what's honorable or what's lovely or what's praiseworthy? When someone pulls out in front of me in the car, I mean, my first tendency is not like, oh, God's in control of that. He totally made that happen. To test me today, to test my faith and trust in him. That's not my first tendency. My first tendency is death, right? Right? Death, I'm going to follow that person home and I'm going to let them know something, right? My, by the way, my new car, the horn's broken. Everything works and the horn's broken. I'm like, God, you're in control of my life. Absolutely. My first tendency is not that. My first tendency is, oh, you know, but practice these things. And it's all about the way that you view Christ has done for you. It's all about the way that you think with your mind and you act with your heart in gratitude to him. And so the answer, you just ask, how do we do this prayer? Pray and ask him to help you. The answer is this supplication saying, I'm not in control. Help me, help me in thanksgiving. I'm going to love you in spite of how you handle this God. If you answer this the way that I think that you should, I'll rejoice. If you don't, I will rejoice. If you don't give me the answer right now, I will rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. So, does he love you? Yes. He's proven that on the cross. He's shown his love for you. Then while you were yet sinners, what did he do? He died for you. Christ died for us. So if you're struggling, you're having trouble rejoicing, he says this. Ask me to help you. I'll show up. If you're a believer in Christ, he will show up. He's already showed up. He's here. The Lord is at hand. And so, when you're hitting highs and lows in difficulty, what do you resort to? What do you fall into? Your first tendencies of I'm angry, I'm mad. I'm ticked off at you. I'm frustrated. Somebody pulled out in front of me. I didn't get that job. Someone in my family is sick. and I'm mad at you. If we're constantly thinking on those things and we're constantly feeling that frustration in our heart, saying, you won't rejoice. How do we rejoice? We look to what he's already done for us what he's proven to do, and we look at how he's consistently in our hand in our lives, and we say, you are in control. I'm a flower of the field. I'm a bird in the air. You feed me. You close me. You add days to my life, and you take them away. You're in control. I trust you. So my question is this. Do you trust him? Do you trust him today? Your highs and your lows, do you trust him? Do you trust him? God, help us. Let's pray.